Glad we're here. Uh, Guys, let me pray and then we'll get into the message. Uh, Father, help us to bring humble hearts to you as we listen to uh, really elements from your word that are so key. Uh, Your word is living. It's alive. It's unlike any other work on the earth, Lord. You use it by your spirit to enlighten us, convict, encourage, reprove, build up. And we pray that you'd be about that this morning. Help us to bring lively hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, if I ask you who's the who is a king that you hear less of or from, uh, maybe than anybody else in comparison, who who would your king be? So you got LeBron and Elvis and Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know who'd be on your list. A king, famous king that just doesn't get much press. We're going to talk about one of those this morning. He's a man whose birth was prophesied hundreds of years by name before his birth. He's from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. He would destroy the works of the devil. He would restore true worship. And he would rule over the Jewish people as their king. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? But it's not. That's not who we're looking at. We're looking, in fact, at the Old Testament king, Josiah. He is Jesus' forebear. He's in the line of David. He's in Josiah's line. Uh, But Jesus is, of course, Josiah's better. Like so many of the characters that we've been in in this series, heroes and villains, he's meant to be in his faithfulness. He's meant to be a paradigm or an image. I got nothing, Ben. Thank you. Of, uh, of Christ. You remember in the series where we're looking primarily really at heroes. You look at villains because they're the negative. They're the thing you don't want to aspire to. Sort of the lesson in its negative version. But on the positive, you're looking at biblical characters who display elements of Christ-like faithfulness. And, and Josiah does that in spades. He's one of the most overlooked and at the same time one of the greatest characters in all the Bible. And that sounds high, maybe higher than you would uh, peg Josiah, but this is a summary statement that God has written about Josiah, 2 Kings 23-25. Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's pretty high praise, isn't it? Let me qualify it just slightly so that we put it in the perspective I think God wants us to. This is not, I think, in fact, comparing him to David and for this reason. The key phrase here is no king like him who turned to the Lord. What you'll see in the life of Josiah, he inherits a kingdom that is as bad or worse than the pagan nations God displaced through Israel. And what you see in Josiah's life is a personal, and then out of his personal turning to the Lord, a national, corporate turning back to God. So that God is saying there was no king like Josiah who turned to him in humility and repentance. And that, in fact, is what the story says about him. And he is absolutely a paradigm of Christ-like faithfulness so what made Josiah great what makes him a paradigm of faithfulness for you and I today and it's this and this is what the text will point out he responded to God and God's word in humility and faithfulness 
Now, faithfulness, as you know, is a key term in this whole series, Christ-like faithfulness. You could qualify that. You could expand it. You could say you're talking about obedience. You're talking about not just attitude, but actions. You're talking about follow-through. Insert whatever word is helpful for you, but it's the way it played out in his life. Humility on the front end, but a real act of obedience and really a plan for obedience that flowed out of that. So just pause for a minute. I hope you have a study sheet. Just to ask yourself this, how do I tend to respond when God shows me my sin? And that could come up in a number of different ways. But what, am I, what is characteristic of me? So I'm going along in life and I think life's okay and I'm okay. God's lovely and I'm lovely. And then I hear something on the radio or I'm at church, lyrics of a song. I'm in my Bible in the morning. And I read something and it upsets my apple cart. And I see that my life is not what I thought it was before God. That there are holes in my holiness. What do I do with that? How do I tend to respond? Nobody gets this perfect all the time. As we're working through this, we're looking at a guy who did this very, very well. So we want to emulate that. But we're not setting up a standard of perfection for ourselves as we do that. Because, of course, we fail that every day. So the main point we want to take away is faithfulness in the image of Christ means we respond to God's word with humility and faithfulness or obedience or an action plan or whatever's helpful for you. And to put this in perspective, uh, here's the Assyrian Empire. This is the, this is the world of the Middle East during Josiah's day. And if you remember, Assyria was the empire of the day and they'd already taken over Israel, the northern tribes had been taken in 722. We'll look at the timeline here in just a second. And so Judah is really a little kingdom in the Middle East. And, and again, they're a buffer zone sort of between the Assyrian power through the Fertile Crescent and Egypt down below. Uh, but they're just they're a tiny little spot in the larger world of their day. And then if you look at the timeline... Uh, see how we're inserting Josiah here? Did you guys know... so? If you know your chronology, you might say, Mike, um, Josiah is out of chronological order by a couple hundred years. What's the problem? In fact, we're closing out the year, but we're also closing out the Old Testament heroes and villains this morning as well. So I call this a happy accident. So on my bad, literally, you know, this has been a work in progress for a long time, the series, if you're going to put 66 messages together. So when I was cutting and editing and adding and subtracting, probably more than a year ago, I forgot Josiah in a place in the list he didn't belong, out of chronological order. Well, I only noticed this about a month ago, too late to do anything about it to get him in where he belonged. The flip side was, as I kept seeing him in the wrong chronological order, all I was thinking about was Josiah as a picture of Jesus around Christmas. This is a good thing. So I call it a happy accident. I take the blame, and if it works out well, then we'll, we'll credit God with that too. But on the timeline, you see 640, we're squeezing him in between Isaiah and the fall of Judah. He is the last good king in Judah. So after him, there are four kings. Two are very brief. These are sons and one grandson. Two are very brief, three months. Don't hardly count them. Uh, and two that reign 11 years apiece. And none of them are good. He's the last good king in the Old Testament. He's the last good king before his heir, Jesus, is born much later. He's the last good king in the history of Israel because from 586 on, Israel has not had a king. They've had governors. They've had people 
from the line of Judah, from the line of David, that came back from the captivity and acted as governors, but they have not had a king since. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus comes back, He's the first king of Israel at this point in about 2,500 years. That's quite, quite a gap. So that's where we're at. And we're going to get into Josiah. And by the way, many of you have, have mentioned that um, the history, the uh, putting together the biblical story in a, in a biblical historic overview has been helpful. And that was actually one of my hopes in the series all along that we have a sense of the big sweep of the biblical story and narrative. And so I'm glad for that. And hopefully it also just helps some things stick. I get a sense of where someone is or where they fit in. If you were picking someone who would likely be a great king, it would not have been Josiah, simply because of his pedigree. So Josiah is the grandson of King Manasseh. And you don't have to know much Old Testament history to know Manasseh was not only the longest ruling king in Israel, 55 years, he was also arguably the most wicked. So if you look him up in 2 Kings 21, uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His, his father was good King Hezekiah. And you remember Hezekiah, there was a great national re repentance and restoration under King Hezekiah. Well, his son Manasseh overturns everything Hezekiah had done. And he reverts the nation back to idolatry far worse than it had before. Listen to just a couple of things he did. So he rebuilds the places of idolatry. Guys, this is beyond my ability to wrap my brain around. He burned his son as an offering on an idol statue. Can you imagine taking your baby boy and you put him on an altar so he's consumed by the heat of the altar? That's what he did. Verse 16 in 2 Kings 21 says, He shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. He is arguably the most wicked king. And because of Manasseh, for one reason at least, God gives a number of reasons why he dispossesses Judah in captivity. But one of them is Manasseh. He says because of what Manasseh has done, Israel is going down. The, the nation of Judah is going down because of Manasseh. Now, if you read 2 Chronicles, and by the way, you know, when you're reading your Old Testament, you got 1 and 2 Kings, and you got 1 and 2 Chronicles. And you got to read Chronicles, and you got to read Kings. You got to read them both to have the full story because they don't tell the same story from the same perspective. So in Chronicles, you learn that unbelievably, at the end of his life, Manasseh repents. And God forgives him, and God restores him to his kingship. And he actually starts making some changes in the nation. But when he dies and his son Ammon comes on the scene, it's still a nation filled with the idolatry that he brought in. And Ammon is just like Manasseh before his end-of-life conversion. And it is a wicked, wicked nation. And Ammon reigns for two years, Manasseh's son. And then he's slain. There's conspirators. And maybe they're just like, we can't go through another 50 years of this. And so he's slain. And that's why his son, Josiah, comes on the scene. So if you have your Bibles or your study sheets, we're going to start in 2 Chronicles 34. This is verses 1-9. through 9. And I'm going to be back and forth a little bit between Chronicles and Kings. And you can follow along. These are in order on your study sheet. Josiah is eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right. Sort of a summary statement here at the beginning of his life. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of David his father and he didn't turn 
aside to the right hand or to the left. You remember in Proverbs, the godly life, the godly man is the one who walks straight ahead. You don't err and sin one way or the other. Verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. So he, this says he's yet a boy, eight years into his reign. He's 16 years old. And I just point out, there's lots of kids that grow up in Lion Lamb Church and other churches like this. And you grow up in a household where your parents have faith and they have a relationship with God. And you grow up sort of under that umbrella. But as you get older, if you don't make it your own, it never becomes your own. And we don't know the influences in Josiah's life at this point. Dad is gone. So don't know who those folks are. But as he goes into his teenage years, he began, he began making faith, an active faith in God, his own as a teenager. And this is what you see incrementally in his life, he keeps moving closer and more fully towards God. So at 16, he starts, it says, seeking the Lord. So his heart's tender and he's seeking God. What do you want? In the 12th year, so he's 20 years old now, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. So don't know exactly what's going on. The story doesn't tell us that. How's he being informed? Who's, who's helping him? But he knows enough to say, this stuff is wrong. And we're going to start getting rid of that. And then at 26 years old, because he is still seeking the Lord and because he's required something, there's a discovery that's made that changes his life and the nation's. It changes everything. It upends their apple cart. So this is 2 Kings 20, 22 now, moving out of Chronicles back to Kings. And what comes out of this, because he's moving towards the Lord, is the last revival in the Old Testament before the captivity. It's the last hurrah for Judah before they go down in judgment. So in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, he commands Hilkiah the priest to restore the temple. Now guys, this is what was going on. The temple at this point, it was a dustbin and it was a closet. So the idolatrous kings of Judah had let the building simply deteriorate. They weren't keeping care of it. They'd added altars and other shrines, pagan shrines, into the temple courts. And there was debris and storage stuff all throughout the temple. It wasn't treated as a temple anymore. So, so Josiah says, hey, Hilkiah the high priest, I want you to clean it out and I want you to restore it. Okay, they say, the money's there, we'll get it done. Uh, verses 8-13 through 13 in 2 Kings 22, So Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now it says in the, the various accounts, it's a week. They're clearing stuff out for a week. There's all this stuff in there. And at that point, they find a scroll. And the scroll they call the, the book of the law. Now it doesn't articulate it any more finely than that, but the assumption is that they found a scroll of Deuteronomy. And specifically because Deuteronomy, if you remember the last book of, of the, law, the law of Moses, the Torah, in which right before they go into the land, Moses reiterates the law and he warns the people of Israel that will possess the law. They're in a covenant with Yahweh. Here are the blessings. Here are the curses. So they found that. So Shaphan the secretary came to the king and he said to the king, hey, your servants, they've been given the funds and the repairs on the temple are going swimmingly. It's all good. And then he says, and oh, by the way, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So this is just a normal king for, uh, day for King Josiah. Right? The work's going on. And the guy says, oh, by the way, there's something you should hear. 
There's something we found, and I need to read it to you. And so Josiah says, okay, well, let's hear it. So, assuming this is Deuteronomy, and they read Deuteronomy, towards the end of the book, if you've read it, you know, we've got a list of blessings, and we've got a list of curses. So they've got the scroll, and they start to read it to the king. And let me give you, again, this is just, these are snippets, okay? Just to get a taste, a flavor for what Josiah heard and why it impacted him the way it did. So in Deuteronomy 28, the list of blessings wraps down, winds down, and God says when you bless, you'll be the head, not the tail. You'll loan, you, you'll loan, you won't borrow. You, you'll be healthy. Life will be grand. But then he goes into the curses. If you don't keep covenant faithfulness with me, God says, if you won't obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you're not careful to obey His commandments, these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city. You'll be cursed in the field or the country. You're going to be cursed when you come in and you'll be cursed when you go out. This is all an opposite of the blessings that would have attended faithfulness. You'll be cursed with pestilence, disease, drought. The heavens over your head will be brawn. Not only no rain, but when you pray to heaven, heaven doesn't listen. You'll be defeated by your enemies. Your dead bodies will be food for the birds of the air. This was a terrible disgrace to not have an honorable burial. A nation that you've not known will eat up the fruit of your ground, your labors. You're going to be oppressed and crushed continually. And listen to this just as a summary. This isn't the end of the list. Just a summary statement. That you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. It will be so bad you will lose your grip on your own rationality and sanity. It's not going to end. It's going to be far worse than you can imagine. So that's, that is what we assume Josiah heard. So, on the last Sunday of the year, are we suitably depressed at this point? <laughs> We're not under this covenant, by the way. Can anyone say amen? Rick's not here. Amen! <laughs> We're under a new covenant. We're not under this covenant. Guys, we have grace on grace, don't we? Remember John 1? The law came from Moses. That's what Josiah gets. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's who we're with. That's what we're under. But this is again a lesson of faithfulness. So what's Josiah going to do? And what would you do? So remember, you're going all along in life and in all the ways you know, you're right with the Lord. And you just get hit by a sledgehammer that says, no, nope, your life isn't at all where you thought it was and you're not okay. And, and trouble is coming. Despair, depression, I'm, I'm just giving up and falling down. What, what do I do? What will Josiah do? Well, look at his response. You can see this in 2 Kings 22 again. If you look starting there at verse 11. So the king heard the words of the book of the law. He tore his clothes. So he's upset. You remember for them tearing the clothes, ashes on the head. They are symbols of humiliation before God, of repentance, of deep sorrow and contrition. Tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and along with other servants and said, Go inquire of Yahweh, the Lord, for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's kindled against, not our enemies, but against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that's written according to us. So he says, he hears the words of the book and he realizes we've, we've simply come in and inherited our forebears' unfaithfulness, but that's on us now. 
And his initial response is it's this sorrow, it's a repentant, humble attitude because he's heard God's word. He knows something's got to happen. Now, the next thing he does, remember, this has been going on for a long time. There's been a lot of unfaithfulness in Israel. He not only has heard God's word, but he wants to have a sense of, Lord, what does this look like for me? So we've just heard this. We, we get it. But what do we do? What, how do I go forward? What's, what's your word? What's your direction to me now having heard this? And so he inquires of a prophet who is a woman, Huldah the prophetess. Now it's interesting, uh, Jeremiah is a prophet during this time and he's not brought in. And maybe he's not there now, we don't know, the story doesn't say. But Huldah is a prophetess, one of five gals named as a prophet in the Old Testament. And she's married to a prominent guy and they're in Jerusalem and so she's available and there they go. So they go and they inquire of Huldah and she said this, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster on this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah because they have forsaken me, they have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. She reiterates what God has already said. All of the things that he just read, it's coming. It's all going to happen. There's no escape. It might be delayed, but it's all coming. But then listen to this, verse 26. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you've heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place, and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. So God says two things. All the disaster, it's coming. But this is the thing. Because of your humble response based on what I have said, my word, you are going to be spared the judgment that I'm bringing on Judah. Now, if you read the end of Josiah's story, you might question this promise. So, Josiah reigns from 640 to 609 B.C. And in 609 B.C., Pharaoh Necho is coming up the coastal plain. And he's going to help the Assyrians battle that rising new power, Babylon. And Josiah knows he's coming. So Josiah gets his smallish army and goes out to meet him. And Necho says, hey, my battle's not with you. And Josiah says, nope, bring it on. And Josiah is killed in battle. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like Josiah died in peace. But this was the thing. God's promise was that the judgments that I'm bringing on Judah will not fall on you. And so he dies in 609. And guys, in 605, Babylon overtakes Assyria. And in 605, the first Jewish deportation from Judah occurs. Four years after Josiah dies, the judgments begin. And then those are culminated in 586 B.C. when Zedekiah and his reign ends and Babylon takes over and they're deported. And all the things God said happen, happen. So Josiah dies a mere four years before the first element of the judgment begins. And that would be the point. You're not going to live to see it. 
If you remember also back to his great-grandfather, Hezekiah welcomed the Babylonians in when they heard he had, he had um, healed up from his, his sickness. And he showed them all the stuff in his house. And the prophet tells them then, by the way, these guys, this nation, they're going to take all your stuff away. And if you remember, Hezekiah says, and it sounds bad in, in the way it's, you can read it, he says, well, at least it won't happen in my day because God tells him it won't happen in your day. But that was seen as a positive. You're not going to be present for the judgment God is going to bring true to His Word. And both Hezekiah and Josiah saw that. They were intended to see that as a blessing. I'm pulling you out before I pour my judgment out. So, so Josiah's heard God's Word. He's been humble. He's been repentant. And he has sought counsel. And now he's going to start taking action. Back to 2 Chronicles 34. And by the way, I'm just going back between Kings and Chronicles to try and get the fullest or the best images of each section of Josiah's life. So the king sent and he gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, all the leadership. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, to the cleansed temple with all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites, all the people, great and small. So he basically said, family, we're getting together. National family, we're getting together. We're huddling up here at the temple. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So he, he lets everybody else know, guys, this is where we're at and this is what's coming. And then listen at verse 31. The king stood in his place. So he's before all the leadership and all the nation that's gathered. And he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord to keep His commandments and His testimonies, His statutes with all His heart and all His soul. So God has told him judgment's coming. But Josiah simply knows we haven't done right. We haven't been faithful to Yahweh. And he says to them, he reads the covenant, and he says to the nation, guys, I am all in. Judgment's coming, but I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to honor the covenant God made with us. I am all in. Personally. Now, he can't make a new covenant. It says he makes a covenant. All he can do is say to the covenant that exists, I'm in, I'm committed. So he does it personally. And then because he's king, verse 32, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. So he leads Israel. He is the king. So on one hand, he says... Guys, I'm all in. And on the other hand, he says, and so are you. So I'm king. You're following my lead. So at the very least, this meant starting to put away the idolatry that, that was still present throughout Jerusalem and Judah. So that's what's going on. Josiah's reforms begin. And as I said, this is the last great revival in Jewish history before the captivity. You know, when they return to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, there's some revivals as well. This is the last one before God's judgment falls on them. So verse 33, they remove the elements of idolatry. And then listen to this. This is 2 Chronicles 35. So Josiah restored the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and they kept the Passover. And this was, this was a signally important for Israel. Remember, once a year, you remember what God did for you. He brought you out of slavery in Egypt. He brought you into a broad and fruitful land. It says this in 2 Chronicles 35, 17, the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time 
And the feast of unleavened bread, seven days, you know, Passover and then unleavened bread, one block of days. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. That's 400 years. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he's restored the temple and temple worship and specifically so in remembering the Passover. Now again, if you know history, Hezekiah also instituted a historic Passover. And I think the difference between the two would have been Hezekiah didn't actually follow the, the law. It wasn't done according to the law and they figured God would, would graciously overlook that because they were too late to do the Passover at the right time. The priests weren't sanctified wholly to do the Passover service and, and so they just figured, God, our heart's in it. We trust you'll overlook this. But Josiah basically did it right. Hadn't been done like this for 400 years. So just, just th- think of his pattern here. Think of his pattern as a model for us. So he responds to God and God's Word with real humility, with repentance and then action. There's acknowledgement. There's sorrow and humility. There's consultation. I need help. What do I do? How, how do I go forward specifically? And then there's action. We want to just pause again for a minute to, to ask ourselves, when I find that issue in my life, that I understand God's Word speaks to me and says, Mike, here's an issue. My action plan for whatever. My idolatry. The, the version of whatever that unfaithfulness was. What do I do? You know, How do I go about that? So I can get God's Word speaks to me and I say, okay, I get it. What else does Scripture say to that area, that arena of my life that I get God saying, Mike, this is, this is not what I want for you. You're not walking in faithfulness. What does Scripture say to that? I want to bring to bear. I want to bring to my mind. What does Scripture say about this? I've told you guys before, but man, as a young man, people thought I was patient and I, I, was, a, I was a fire of anger. And I almost got myself and friends in trouble with the law at various times because I was so angry. And so as a new believer, I realized, man, I got a problem. And so I just went to Scripture. And you know, especially I went through Psalms and Proverbs and I looked up all the verses that had to do with anger because I wanted to bring to bear what God said about my sin issue. wanted to bring that in so I would meditate on that. Think about that. You know, what should I change? Josiah had to come up with an action plan. Okay, idolatry is wrong. How do I get rid of this? What does that look like physically? Start with the temple, work out from there. Whom can I ask counsel and advice? A lot of times this is something that we may not do that we really should. Who's either walked before me, who's older, who knows something about this, like hold of the prophetess was for Josiah. Practically, principally for me, how do I wisely go about implementing an action plan for myself just as Josiah did? We want to respond like Josiah. And this is the thing, really. This is, he's this paradigm of faithfulness in humble response to God's Word when it pointed out a deficiency in his life and in the nation's life. He's just, it's a paradigm of faithfulness. And that's where we want to hang our hat. We want to be like Christ. Now, let me qualify this. Um, see if this, any, this resonates with any of you. So Josiah's paradigm of faithfulness. I've sinned. God points out my sin. I I humble myself. I repent. I make an action plan. And I I go down the road. (laughs) Man, I'm good with that. Unless I'm not. Except when I don't. 
So, I love Josiah's response, but it can also overwhelm me. Uh, and that's sometimes because I'm not as godly and responsive to the sin I see in my life as Josiah was. What do we do when we not only see sin in our life? So I see I've got a deficiency in my life. I've got idolatry of one form or another. But I find that my response is itself sinful and deficient because it's not adequate to leave that sin behind. And guys, I think actually most of us live here, not with Josiah. So, and I want to be very careful in this. And in this series, I've said this over and over and over again for a reason. The thing is this. We're not under that old covenant and you and I don't save ourselves. And your faithfulness doesn't save yourself. So we live under the new covenant. And guys, all you get from God is grace upon grace because you're God's child through faith in Jesus. If you've trusted Christ to cover your sins under the new covenant, the new covenant blood washes all your sins away. All the guilt of our sin is gone. It's covered. It's grace on grace. But it's possible for us as believers to still develop the Pharisaic legalistic mindset that I'm going to achieve my standard of acceptance with God by my faithfulness. Now, we want to be faithful. Don't get me wrong. We want to be faithful. We want to live like Josiah did. The trouble is we often don't. What's my attitude when I see that? I've got a sin problem and I've got a secondary sin problem because I don't fully address the sin in my life. And usually it goes something like this. I tend to speak hurtful words. And I did last year. And I am this year. And I probably will the coming year. Or I have lustful thoughts. And I had them ten years ago. And I had them five years ago. And I have them this year. You see what I'm saying. Sometimes we call them besetting sins or we call them patterns or habits of the mind or the heart. But most of us will find there are elements in our life that aren't pleasing to God and we work at them and we want to be faithful like Josiah and sometimes we just don't get there. And I am not giving an apology for Christians to be sinful, but to be realistic about where we are and where we live. And we're not always the Josiahs. And so what do we do when we're not? And guys, at that level, there's things we can do, right? We, we can, we, you persist, right? You don't give up. You persist, for sure. And you continue to be humble and you continue to put those elements in your life that help keep you away from sin. But at the end of the day, we're simply saying, Lord, thank You that You've covered my sin in Christ's blood. And as Your child, I want to please You. I'm not earning salvation. I'm not earning favor. God can't love me any more any less than He does because I am in Christ. And I've got a struggle and I just can't seem to get over it and I'm just laying it at your feet again. And guys, you might do that today and you might do that tomorrow and you might do it the next day. And I'd simply say at that level, we don't give up. And, and frankly, by the way, I would tell you, I think that oftentimes it's the failures in our life that help keep us humble. It's those areas of life when we realize in our moments of honesty, I'm simple, I'm, I'm not who and what I meant to be. And we bring that, if we're humble, if we're real, instead of religious, and this is the, the concern, don't go religious because it's just pride and, and it's false. But you humble yourself and you say, Lord, I get it, I see it, and I'm deficient in my response, and I thank You that Jesus covers my faults again. And then I'm accepted as He is. And I ask You as Your child to help me in this area where I can't seem to get over it myself. So when we... 
follow Josiah's example. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And that happens. When we see those areas in our life in which we've been unsuccessful in that, you can still praise the Lord and simply throw yourself at the feet of a merciful, loving Father who just says, again, I just keep thinking of John 1, grace upon grace. If you're tempted to despair, I, this, is, this was a timely uh, event for Kathy and I last week. This is, this is my cousin Kathleen's husband, Paul Erbaum. That's his obituary picture. He was just, just uh, buried uh, Thursday. And Paul Erbaum's got to be one of the loveliest guys you'd ever meet. He's tall, handsome. Paul's four or five years older than me, mid to upper 60s. He was the picture of health. And he went into the hospital about a week before Christmas because he couldn't breathe well. And he never went home because he was filled with cancer. And he had no idea. And so at his funeral, and I'm a fan of funerals in the sense that they're serious and people are open and typically uh, honest perhaps in ways they may not be when, when things feel more glad or, or happy. But I'll tell you, this is... Uh, this is what happened. So we're sitting through Paul's funeral, hour and a half, and um, his kids give their read their testimonies of their dad. Now Paul's a Paul's a husband. He's a father of five kids. He was an educator. He was a coach. He was a salesman. Late in life, in fact, just a few years ago, he went back and got his master's degree in special ed. He was a 501 special ed teacher. So his kids read their testimonies, and and uh, they're just glowing. And there's story after story about his thoughtfulness, his kindness. And if you met him, you'd know. You know, funerals, we sing the best about each other because we want to, and that's good. But Paul, it's like, nope, it's all true. He really was that thoughtful. He really was that patient. He really was that considerate of other people as long as you knew him all his life. And so they're reading, the, the kids are reading the testimonies. His, his work fellow workers are reading their testimonies. His f former students are reading his testimonies. And... You know what is happening to Mike? On one hand, I'm thinking, man, that's great. And on the other, I feel my own manhood just shrinking compared to Paul Urbom's. And I'm thinking, Lord, I work at being kind. Guys, I really do. Whether you ever see that or not, I'm aware of it. I work at it. But I'm like, I'll never be a Paul Urbom. His thoughtfulness, just this, this uh, disposition towards others just as a given. It's just like, I'm loving Paul on one hand and I'm just, I'm just feeling crushed under the weight of a standard that I, I have no hope of achieving. And if we only see Josiah as the paradigm, you can feel like I'm crushed because I can't get there. Or I can't get there all the time. Or I'm not getting there this time. And that's not where we want to live. We want to live. I want to live like a Paul Irvom and I want us to live like Josiah. And when we get there, that's great. But friends, the reminder is ultimately Josiah points us to Jesus and not to ourselves. Uh, you know, almost 300 years before Josiah was born, uh, God made Jeroboam the king of the northern ten tribes. And, and he gave, by the way, Jeroboam the same promises uh, that he gave David for faithfulness. And Jeroboam says, I don't think so. So he sets a couple, couple of places of idol worship, calf worship in Dan and, and then down in Bethel. And God sends a, a prophet from Judah up to that uh, idol center in Bethel. 
This is 930 B.C., 1 Kings 13. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. This is, three, this is, this is 300 years before Josiah. God's, God calls him by name. Josiah by name, he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. Human bones shall be burned on you. So almost three centuries later, that's exactly what young, humble, repentant Josiah did. You see this in 640 B.C., 2 Kings 23, starting at verse 15, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam uh, that made Israel sin, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He burned the Asherah, the female deity. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs on the mountain and he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs. These are the priests that offered sacrifices on that altar. These are their bones. And he burned them on that altar and he defiled it according to the Word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Here's the guy that's predicted by name from the tribe of Judah, the line of David. He comes, he destroys the idolatrous works of the devil and he calls Israel back to God and to faithfulness and he rules over them as their king for the last hurrah. Uh, before judgment falls. You know, um, Christmas is past. We're sort of in the shadow of Christmas. But I love considering Josiah in the context of the incarnation that God sent His Son. Think of Isaiah 9 and He calls Him all these wonderful titles. Emmanuel. Emmanuel's going to come. He's going to stay with you. And Hebrews tells us He destroys the works of the devil. He's going to do all these things. And ultimately, He'll rule and reign not only over Israel and Judah, of course, but over the nations of the world as well. Josiah ultimately is meant to point us to Christ. And think of this too. So, Josiah hears the curses of the law read out. And he's trembling for himself and for the nation. But you know, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, He took on Himself more than the curses of Deuteronomy. He took on God's perfect wrath and judgment for all your sins and all my sins. Scripture says, in fact, for the sins of the world so that there's no curse left. Indeed, praise God. Jesus has done far more for us than Josiah could for his own people. But he's a picture, he's a paradigm, not only of faithfulness, but of the one who would come and would eventually take all the failures of Israel, all your failures and mine, all God's wrath, all the curse, would take them all on Himself so that what God has left for you and I today is grace upon grace. And so on the Sunday after Christmas, we want to know that Christ is our Savior. And there's no work about it, right? You don't have to be religious to be a Christian. In fact, we'd rather not be religious, right? We would rather be spiritual and real and authentic because the God of all life has saved us through His Son. And we receive that simply by the arms of faith. So we want to follow Josiah in confessing our sins, in in humbling ourselves before God, in developing an action plan to walk free from sin. Jesus has died so we could walk free from sin. And when we find our resolve against sin is inadequate, instead of despairing, instead of just sort of lying in depression, which, which is a real temptation, better to simply say, Lord, thanks that Jesus died for my sins. And He died for my failure to respond to sins in the way that I should. And I'm glad to throw myself at Your feet and Your mercy and Your grace again 
and again and again. We're going to close. How many were here Christmas Eve, by the way? How many here missed the Christmas video song, Christmas Eve? <laughs> we're going to play that now. <laughs> small 